All right, well, this morning we are going to continue. In fact, we're going to, I think we're concluding our series on Sabbath and rest. Um, Crystal and Alex are going to share some stuff next Sunday. My family and I are going to Nashville for a few days and we'll be gone next Sunday. So I think, I think that might end up kind of tying in in some, in some cool ways. So maybe that's, maybe that's the wrap-up of the series. I don't know yet. But I'm done preaching on this series after this morning. Um, so this is part five of our series on Sabbath rest. Um, I always feel tempted to try, to try to recap and just make sure there's a few things we're holding in our minds um, because I, I do see this all connected in a lot of ways. And um, I, I just for time's sake, I can't do that this morning, but... Um, I would just encourage you, God made us for rest. He loves us. It's a gift that he intended for us. Um, our culture cries out for it. We don't create margin and space for rest. Um, and so it takes purpose to say, I'm going to do that. Um, ultimately, our rest is rooted in him and what Jesus has done for us. And then there's practical ways that we work from a healthy perspective and we slow down in practical ways and rest and recharge. And so that's, that's like five or six sentences there on the ground that we've covered up to this point. So this morning, for the first time, I'm going to talk about Sabbath as it relates to church. <laughs> I think it's all connected, but, but we're going to talk about Sabbath as worship this morning. And so there are two main points, and those two main points are also our title this morning, titling this Solitude and Sanctuary, Solitude and Sanctuary. And so at the simplest level, this is about the need to find Sabbath by connecting alone with God and by connecting in church family. That's it. Now, what, what I hope that you don't hear this morning is just, okay, so Jake's two points are pray and go to church. Got it. <laughs> Been told that my whole life. Thanks a lot. My hope is that we would be invited into how those two things can work together to be restful, refreshing, restorative, um, when they're intentional and they're purposeful, they can become meaningful. When they're an obligation, when they're the routine, they can, they can at best just become not that important and at worst, something that we just feel obligated to do, and it robs us of the life God intended for us. And so my hope this morning is not that you walk away from this going, I don't pray enough, or I should attend church more regularly. That is not my hope. My hope is that, that we hear God's invitation to find rest in him, that there is a place in us that can only be fulfilled and satisfied by sitting alone with our God. And that we would find whether we like it or not, we need each other. And that we benefit from being around one another. So that's where we're going this morning. Um, all right, so the way I want to do this is I want to start by just, I'm not, I'm not going to expound on all these, but I just want us to get a sense of how much this stuff permeated Jesus' life. Like if the Savior of the world, if God who became man had to pause regularly to get alone and away from people to be with God, how much more do we? And, and I, th I think that at times we can, we can have the flannel graph Jesus. You know, we can have the, the storybook Jesus and we miss the fact 
that at 30 years old, this guy threw his life out there and was like a thunderbolt for three and a half years or so. Where, where the words he spoke and the life he lived were so radically impactful, people had to be around him. This guy would roll into town and people would find out what house he was having dinner at and they'd just invite themselves over. They would crowd in. They would surround the house. We've got to be... Like, I don't even think we have a framework for this in our culture. Like, Jesus was that attractive and impactful and he was doing things that were so meaningful. Like, like when he stood up in the synagogue and got the scroll out and turned the verse to the Old Testament prophecy about him showing up to bring recovery of sight to the blind and declaring the year of the Lord's favor. And he was laying out his mission statement and then he did it. And it was radically, he was radically touching people's lives. And so he shows up on the scene and and Luke tries to capture this. In, in Luke's gospel, we'll see some stuff in Mark and Matthew as well. Luke tried to capture this in, in chapter 5, verse 15. Like, this is just kind of at the start of things. And he says, but now even more, the report about him went abroad. And great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. They showed up with expectation. And, and people were just drawn to him. Verse 16, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Jesus wasn't a machine. He was a human being. He got tired. He got hungry. He needed to introvert at times. As we see here, he needed to get away. How much more do we? The, the pressing cares of life. There, there is nothing wrong with having a full, busy life. We're called to that. We live those. This series isn't about, you know, being a monk somewhere and, and disappearing from life. But we crave, we need solitude, rest. We need to pull away from the quiet of the day. And what I, what I hope we can learn from Jesus is that the way he found rest was in the Father's presence. Private devotion was not an obligation to him. It wasn't something that mom or dad or the preacher had said, we have to do this. No one told him he had to do this. He knew the place that he would be refreshed and restored was getting away to desolate places and being with the Father. Prayer was not this thing he had to do or be good at or say just the right way. He understood that at the heart of it, prayer was time with God, where his soul could commune with his Father who loved him. And so what Luke describes here is a pattern what he's describing here is not a one-time thing. He said, this is what it was like. The report was spreading about him. He would teach people. He would touch their lives. He would show up in a town, and then he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. That was a rhythm of his life, was to get away and find solitude. So I'll give you some examples of this. 
He would do this in the early morning. He'd start his day like this. Mark chapter one, verse 35. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark. We got any morning people in here? We got any non-morning people in here? Okay, yeah, the hands really go up for that one. (laughs) Early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Matthew chapter 14, verse 23. After a long demanding day, he would get away. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Hey, there's good news. Morning people. You can get up early before dark and spend time with Jesus. Non-morning people, it's okay to have your devotion in the evening after a long day. It's even kind of biblical, like the Jewish day starts at evening. You're starting your day before the morning people. You're really early. (laughs) So listen, there are rhythms. Let me start my day like this. Let me end my day like this. There's wisdom in finding rhythms to say, I'm going to get away and prepare for what I'm about to encounter today. I'm going to, I'm going to reflect on and get refreshed after a long day. There's rhythms. But it's, it's not this pressured, put it on your calendar. Man, if you miss three days in a row getting up at 5 a.m. with Jesus, he's just really disappointed in you. This is about finding rest in him and going, it's, it's worth it to build some rhythms into my life where I can be with him and be filled and recharged. Jesus would get with the Lord before he would make crucial decisions. Luke chapter six, verses 12 and 13. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. Verse 13. And when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them the 12 whom he named apostles. Before making a big crucial decision, He didn't sit down and strategize it. He didn't call together a meeting of some other really intelligent people to help him figure out who were the most qualified disciples. He spent time with the Father, got guidance, direction from him. Here's the beauty of this. This this was such a part of Jesus' life that he wanted to bring those he loved into this. He wanted to model this for for them. He would pray in their presence. We, We see that in the Garden of Gethsemane, We see it um, much earlier in his ministry when he was praying in a certain place and his disciples are there with him and watching and he finishes and they go, you gotta teach us how to pray. Like they began to identify. We see he's really unique and one of the things we notice about him is how regularly he goes away to pray and he prays like, like nobody I know. He's not praying these dry, boring, formal prayers He's spending intimate time. He he calls God Father. We take that for granted now because we've drawn that from the life of Jesus and we've drawn that from New Testament teaching. That was not normal. For God to be viewed in such a personal, intimate way. And so they saw that. They were drawn to it. And so on one such occasion, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, we're going to pick up where he invites kind of his three closest friends to go pray with him. Luke 9, 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, 
who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. It's this, it's this familiar passage, right? The, the Mount of Transfiguration. But if we could step away from the uniqueness of the moment for a minute and just see the power of what's happening, Jesus is saying, come with me to pray. He brings his disciples up there and he's having one of these regular intimate times of prayer with God. And when Jesus prayed, he expected that the father would be there. He expected he wasn't gonna be met with the cinder block wall or the tiled ceilings. Like, like he was going to connect with God. And, and on this occasion, something miraculous begins to happen. But I, I love what happens next. Verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. That ever described anybody's prayer time? My hand is up. They were heavy with sleep, but look what happens. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. That is about more than this moment. When they became fully awake, they saw his glory. That is what is available in finding solitude and rest with God. Maybe it, maybe it takes some getting used to. Maybe I feel like I'm, I'm creating space for this time with the Lord and it feels sleepy, it feels heavy, it feels like something that I'm just not, it's not clicking right away. But the reason solitude is an act of worship is because it's sacrificial. The reason it's worship is it involves trust, that I'm not wasting my time, that God actually cares about me. Not he, he meets those other people when they pray. He'll meet with me when I pray. I can have a personal, intimate, worthwhile time with God that will refresh my heart and soul. I can, I can expect he'll show up. And there's these moments when we give ourselves to that, when we trust what Jesus is inviting us into, that we can become fully awake and see his glory. When they pressed through their physical obstacles, they became fully awake and saw his glory. Let's, let's not be ripped off from the power and the joy of solitude because there are physical obstacles that can get in our way. Let's believe that if this will become a rhythm of our life, if we'll lean in and believe that I could actually be refreshed by having time in his presence and praying, that, that I might have an encounter that could wake me up and light me up and refresh my soul. That's what's available. Now, I hope, I hope we hear this as an invitation. I, if this is something that has been familiar to you, that you experience, I just I hope you'll be encouraged to, to lean in. I know there's, and there's a lot we could talk about in this, right? I know that there's dry seasons in our prayer life. I know that, I know that it's not all mountaintop transfiguration glorious. Sometimes it's just the early morning in the dark. I'm hanging in there. But I just want to encourage us. Jesus needed it. We need it. He invites us into this. And let's watch and see how the Lord might meet us there. Now, I also want to give a little moment of caution before we move on to the next point. The moment of caution is this. 
their next response is often our response when we have a really powerful, meaningful connection with the Lord like this. Peter wanted to stop everything and say, let's live here. He wanted to build tabernacles for Jesus and Moses and Elisha and just say, we need to just live right here. And I, I, I want to... I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want to discourage what I'm just encouraging. But I believe that we are so starved for the presence of God and refreshing in our souls that when we get a taste of it or if we've had a taste of it before and it's been a long time, that if we're not careful, we can actually worship the rest in solitude itself and so glorify it that everything else is ripping me off from having it. And it's an escape from reality, and that's not what it is. It's an essential part of my reality. This was, this was real to Jesus, and I want to show you how real this was. Um, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, Jesus is exhausted, his disciples are exhausted, and they're hurting. John the Baptist has just been executed. This is Jesus' relative and close friend. This is the guy who baptized him in the Jordan River at the start of his ministry, and he's just received word he's been executed. And it is in that context where Jesus has been striving and teaching. They've been in this, in this really busy season and so they're physically worn down, they're spiritually drained, and they're devastated by the loss of a friend. Like, can you, can you get there? Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Oh, we can finally unplug. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. <laughs> None of you parents have ever experienced this with, with your kiddos, right? They just sniff it out. <laughs> they know you're sneaking off to the front porch for a minute. We love you guys. <laughs> Look at this. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and was frustrated and discouraged and super upset with all of them. And that would be my response. <laughs> and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. Jesus didn't get away to escape people he got away so he could love people well. See, see, Jesus lived out of his theology. This is why theology and doctrine are important. Not so I'm the one that's right and can pull out the little I got it right card and set people straight on Facebook every chance I get. It's so I can live aligned with the truth. Jesus lived out of his theology. What was his theology? What was his anchor point? He was asked this on a few occasions. And one of them is found in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. 
Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? How many of you already know what's coming next? You could maybe even quote it, right? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. It's all connected. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Yourself, your neighbor, and your God. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Jesus said his yoke is easy and his burden is light. In the rabbinical Jewish culture, um, you would ask a rabbi, what's your yoke? What's, what's the core of your teaching? What's, what's the thing your teaching hinges upon? And Jesus said, this is mine. Loving God and loving people. So he lived out of that theology. So, so his solitude and rest with the Lord was a part of this. It was, the, it was the way he communed with this God who he loved with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. It was the way, it's the way we learn to love that God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We get around him, we spend time with him, we fall in love with him. We get reminded of his love and goodness towards us. But it was connected with loving people. People weren't pulling him away from God. He wanted to love people well. So these things work together in unison. Does this make sense? So we don't worship the solitude and rest. We worship God in solitude and rest. And we worship God by loving people well. And the two dance. I hope this is making sense. So we live out of our theology. So if that's the anchor point, if point one is, is the importance of solitude or private devotion in Sabbath, the second point of Sabbath is meeting together in the sanctuary gathering with those very people that we're called to love. Basically, what happens is, in family, you're stuck with your family. You ever figure that one out? You're stuck with your family. So you know what we do in family? There's a lot of things we do, but one of the things we do is we practice on each other. And actually, if you can learn to love your family, you can love anybody. Manuel knows, right? That's why you've got that one cousin. You know what I mean? <laughs> so we, we gather together in the family of God to remind each other what love is, for it to be messy at times, but to learn to foster these relationships, to learn to walk in unity, to practice love. And we do it around Jesus. He's the anchor point. He's the center point. And so we gather, and it's like together we remember him. Together we celebrate him. Together we connect with him. And so we, we purpose to connect with each other, and we find Sabbath and rest as we are restored by spending time with the family of God. Sometimes it's challenging. Sometimes it's just awesome and refreshing. But we were made for it. We need it. And it's, it's meant to intermingle. So first of all, Jesus lived this. Jesus lived this. There's all these in-between in spaces in Scripture that are, that are there if we just slow down and watch it. 
He lived with his disciples. He sat around the campfire having conversations with them. They ate meals together. They prayed together. They worshiped together. The scripture records them singing hymns together. They served together. He was connected with his family, the family of God. And then his disciples, his followers, so recognized the importance of this that they just immediately lived it out when he ascended to heaven. I mean, we're all familiar with this passage in Acts chapter two. It's like this ideal that gets held up that we never feel like we can quite get back to. But Acts chapter two, verse 42, let's just read this, how how their lives mingled together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. They spent time learning together. They spent time connecting with each other. The breaking of bread and prayers. They had meals, they prayed. And awe came upon every soul. If we would realize how connected this all is, devoted to the faithful teaching of the word, of who Jesus was, devoted to fellowshipping with each other, having meals together, praying together, and what came about? They were awakened to his glory. Awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. You know, that sounds really special and wonderful. That's describing sacrifice and generosity. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They, they found this rhythm of life where they worshiped together, they encouraged each other, they, they had meals together, but it wasn't an exclusive club that kept people out. It was an open invitation that drew people in to something they were lacking. People didn't know how to find refreshment and community and rest in each other. People is where you find conflict and the opposite of rest. They're draining. But in the family of God, it can be Sabbath. The the picture that's painted here, I'll give you just a couple things in this picture that are painted here. Number one, it's beautiful. Would would anybody deny that? It's, It's beautiful, this picture that's painted of this incredible community. It's actually something the world chases. They might not attach Jesus to it, but the world is chasing this. This beautiful, generous, communal life. But the second thing we have to say about it is it's inconvenient. It's inconvenient. Therefore, it's sacrificial. It's countercultural, which also means it's counter to our self centered lives. Okay, so it's inconvenient and it contradicts our self centered lives. So it, it requires some sacrifice, but it's beautiful. But it's life-changing for us and the community around us. It's life-changing. See, when we live out the rest and the community and the joy that we find in Jesus, when we live that out, when, when, when someone gets to come across another person who has something real in their relationship with God, that's compelling. 
I've been impacted by reading the Bible. Absolutely, I've seen Jesus show up there. But some of the moments that have drawn me the most to him are, are watching other people and going, man, there is something about that guy, that gal. There's something there. It's attractive. A community of messy, broken people that still like love each other and take care of each other and are there for each other, it's attractive. And it's not because we can do that in and of ourselves. It forces us to need him to live like this, but it draws people in. There is, there is a Sabbath community that we're meant to enjoy. I'll give you three observations, and then we're out of here. This is just some stuff from the New Testament that gets unpacked about our need for community. Three things, how we can lean into this beautiful but inconvenient but life-changing Sabbath community. Number one, Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Don't neglect gathering. He's saying it's actually easy to do that. That's what most people do. It's easy to neglect it. It's easy to let that slide. Don't do that. Why? Because you're essential. The church needs you. You have something to bring. You have something to offer. The community of believers is missing out. If, if you're not there, we all bring something needed. He says, consider how you can stir up one another. Encourage one another. Listen, I have to tell you, what we're doing right now in this moment is just like a small little sliver of the pie of church community. Church community was never intended to be one person encouraging a lot of people. This is more just that little piece of the pie that said they gave themselves to the disciples' teaching. Like that's a piece of it. But we, we are meant to bring something. We have something to bring. There's practical ways that can play out, but most of it is just, it's a, it's a mentality shift to say, like, I'm needed. And I'm, I'm bringing something. And I, I see the people I'm meeting with. I see the community I'm meeting with. And I can... I can come and I can encourage Zach today. I can let the Lord highlight maybe a person I'm supposed to spend time with. How do I know I need to encourage Zach? Maybe because I slowed down and listened to him and heard what's going on in his life and we're exchanging life together and I'm, I'm aware of him and I'm aware of what's going on. And then there's a moment for encouragement or challenge or whatever. Is this, this making sense? We, we participate in church community. We participate in this rhythm because the church needs you. Ephesians 5, beginning in the second half of verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We can practice the presence of God when we gather, be filled with his spirit. Not only does the church need us, we need the church. 
When we gather, I should have a sense of awareness that there's, there's something I need. He says, submit to one another. That's humility. That's humility. Letting someone else speak something into your life. Letting someone else be in charge. Letting someone else plan something. Like, like that requires humility. And so at, at the simplest level, the way that we gather is we come and say, I have something to bring and offer and there's, there's something I need to receive. See, church can, has become dry for some of us maybe because we're only doing one of these. I do all the bringing. I do all the giving. And I'm worn out, burnt out, frustrated, and nobody even seems to want what I have to offer. So forget it. Or we're doing nothing but receiving. I know how to show up and get what I want out of this. There's stuff I'm grabbing and I'm getting. We don't realize it's actually dissatisfying to only be in the receiving end. That it actually is beneficial and fulfilling to bring something. They work together, giving and receiving. The church needs you and you need the church. We're made for community. I, I love this just as an aside. I think it's an interesting note and I've experienced this in my life. It was kind of cool seeing this today. If you, if you look back at these verses, it makes it clear that when we gather and worship, there's actually two groups of people we're talking to. We are worshiping and making melody in our heart to the Lord. But he also says, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Do you realize when we're singing truth together, we're singing to each other? We're reminding each other of what we need to hear? We're reminding each other of gospel truth and hope and life? I actually experienced this in a way that I will never forget, the most like, direct way I've ever experienced it. I was back home at my home church in Franklin, going through a really rough season in my life. A few close friends knew about it. One of them was the worship pastor, Jonathan Allen, is the worship pastor, Jonathan Allen. And there was this special worship night at the church. It was like one of those midweek things. And it was like one of the rare times I was going to church and I didn't have some responsibility that night. And so I was literally, I was sitting about where you guys are at, kind of right in this zone, um, a little further back, but in that section, just kind of trying to be, you know, not seen, <laughs> hide in the crowd. And you know that thing where you're like two or three songs into worship and you're just kind of not, in and I just remember finally like there's this one song I just I knew the Lord was like drawing me to respond and so I get up and I start responding and like you remember this don't you and I'm singing and I look up and Jonathan Allen is like staring me down and he is singing the song at me <laughs> now nobody else in the room really knew that unless you knew me and him but I knew what he was doing <laughs> I knew he was looking right at me and singing truth into my life. And it, it drew out a response. And at first I responded to him and then I responded to the Lord. And it was a, it was a crucial moment for me in my life that I'll never forget. My friend loved me enough to sing truth to me. And it reminded me of the goodness of God of his love towards me, of his presence in my life, even in the midst of a hard season. I'll never forget it.
we're made for this. I know, I know Sabbath community doesn't always feel restful. I get that it's in, inconvenient. I get it. I get all the challenges to that. But we're made for it. It's good for us. It's meant to refresh and restore and encourage us. And it produces gratitude and joy. That's the last thing I want to read, and we'll get out of here. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Have a lot of it. Be overflowing with it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Giving ourselves to Sabbath community produces joy and gratitude. When we dwell richly in the truth of the word of God, when we admonish and encourage each other, when we worship together, when we show up anticipating there's something I need to receive and I'm gonna have some humility to receive it. There's something I need to give and I'm showing up ready to participate and to pour into the life of another. God has given us the gift of Sabbath rest. My hope is that we'll learn to receive this rest from him by consistently experiencing solitude, and sanctuary. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. I acknowledge it doesn't always feel that way, but I choose to believe it's true. Jesus, my, my prayer this morning in my own life, as I've been convicted personally, teaching this stuff through this series and realizing ways I'm off, off track, and watching you correct me, I'm grateful for that. Lord, my, my prayer for myself and for my friends is that we would take up your yoke and learn from you. Jesus, that we, we would learn to have your Sabbath rest be a vital, regular part of our life. That we would find ultimate rest in you, Jesus that we would work from a proper perspective, we would enjoy the fruit of our labor, that we would learn to be disciplined, to, to build rest into our calendar, practically, that refreshes us physically, mentally, emotionally. And Jesus, as, as being a part of the family of God, that we would learn from you how to be refreshed in solitude, in time alone with our good Father who loves us. God, that we would learn to find rest as we gather on the Sabbath with each other, coming into your presence, reminding each other of your truth, having something to bring, and being willing to receive. God, would you root this into our hearts and lives? May it produce fruit in us that lasts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.